The reading for today is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. This is God's word. Thank you very much. Short and sweet. Uh, let me add my welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller, one of the uh, staff uh, ministers here. Uh, again, if you're visiting or here for the first time, it's lovely, lovely to have you with us. Let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Father, we've just sung that uh, we need you to understand your word. Uh, for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, your spirit gave us that knowledge. Your spirit opened up the word so we could see who he was. And we pray that he would also be at work now, your spirit, opening up this word to us, to all of us, so we would see Christ clearly, know how to respond rightly to him, we pray in his great name. Amen. Now, this is short and sweet. Actually, it's very simple. Very simple, isn't it, what you've got here? Uh, there's a command. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. There's a reason. If you do, the love of the Father is not in you. Uh, there's an explanation. Here's what loving the world looks like. Verse 16. And then there's another reason. Verse 17. The world will pass. So very simple. Don't love the world. If you do, you don't know God. Here's what loving the world looks like. And it'll pass away. It's very simple. What does he mean, don't love the world? What does that mean? How far do we have to go with that? Do the Amish have it right? And they pull out of the world as a group, but whatever it is, um, a quarter of a million or so, particularly uh, based in the States. I've been in the news recently, I, although I did read about, um, uh, bubbled up in the news back in May, the, uh, the town of Canton, no one had ever heard of it before, but the town of Canton, right in the north of New York State, on the sort of Canadian border, the sort of bleak part, minus 15, that sort of uh, harsh conditions. Uh, it's, a, it's an Amish town. And uh, therefore, uh, the children are not allowed to, to go into the town itself. Um, the, uh, they manufacture milk, that's their big thing, but they would take their milk to a depot and then the drivers would pick it up there just so they didn't have to meet anyone uh, from the outside world. But anyway, they got in trouble in May uh, of this year because they weren't meeting state fire regulations. So a number of men were hauled up to court because they refused to have smoke alarms in their houses. Uh, and this was illegal, and uh, so they were in all sorts of trouble. Now, their complaint was, it is against our Christian beliefs to have something so modern in our homes. Yeah, an interviewer was dispatched uh, to, uh, to meet with these guys and said, not unreasonably, perhaps, but what happens if there's a fire in your house and you don't have a smoke alarm? I use this. 
I use him. I don't need a devil on my wall to tell me if my house is burning. Which is a little strong, perhaps. But is that right? I mean, if you want to hate the world, do you go to that extreme and hate anything that's modern and just pull out? Now, we're in 1 John. We've been in here for the last month or so and a little while longer, as you can see. We're only in the beginning or halfway through chapter 2. And uh, we said that the two main, uh, the twin planks of what John wants to say in this letter are he wants us, he wants believers to know with confidence, to know for certain that they're genuine, they're the real deal, and for them to say no to idols. So there's a group who had departed from the church. If you just drop down a, sen- uh, a couple of sentences, chapter 2, verse 19, there are some who have uh, left uh, the church. They went out from us. They didn't really belong to us. If they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but they're going out, showed that none of them belonged to us. Some have left. And what they've done is they've formed, in John's language, they've formed an idol. They've formed a false Jesus. They've made a Play-Doh Jesus. One that is not very demanding upon them. Morally, they can live as they desire. Spiritually, they can do what they want. It's not a physical manifestation. They haven't literally made a little uh, a Play-Doh model. But they've made a false and idolatrous Jesus. And John is writing these two points. Look, one, you can know for certain you're the real deal. You didn't, don't be thrown by their claims of higher experiences, superior knowledge. No, you're the real deal. I want you to know that for certain. And say no to their idol. Say no to this Jesus idol. Let's see if you remember, the tone of the letter is, is much like a, a parent writing to a child going off to university. I know you're sensible. I know you're certain. I know you're a wise young man. So say no to your friends who take up hard drugs because that'll lead you astray. They promise all sorts of good things, but it's a disaster. It's a dead end. It's a parent writing, look, I know you're okay. I just want to stiffen your resolve a little bit. just want to make sure you don't get sidetracked by them. It's very much the tone of this letter. I want you to know for certain, says John, you're the real deal. Therefore, say no to this false Jesus. Now, what are these verses doing here? What's this about the world? Well, these idolaters who have left the church, they're worldly. And part of them refashioning Jesus Christ is so they can just live the way they want, fit in with the world, live in a sort of worldly fashion. You get another reference, um, you see them just uh, later on across the page, chapter 4, verse 5. Again, John is describing those who've left the church. They are of the world. Chapter 4, verse 5. They are of the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. So there'll be some people, they leave the church and say, you know, John's church in Ephesus, far too restrictive, saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Ah, Jesus, much less demanding. And the media will say, that's nice. That sort of mild Anglicanism, that sort of mild Christianity, we like that. The media will always approve. But John says, that's not the gospel. That's not Jesus Christ. You, I want you to know for certain, you have the real thing. Say no to that, which will mean saying no to the world or worldliness. 
Now, it's not a complicated little passage, this uh, three verses, but actually, rather than work through it, I just want to ask uh, unusually three questions, and actually, they cut across it, but I hope it makes sense. Three questions. Uh, what is the world? Uh, what is loving the world? And uh, then lastly, why not love the world? So hopefully that'll make it clear. First then, what is the world? What is the world that is so bad and must not be loved? Well, John means different things by that, even in this letter. So uh, this is an oversimplification, but you could broadly say that for John in this letter, the world is, well, it's the natural world, the creation, what God has made, a place. The world is simply a geographical place on the one hand. And uh, he uses that sort of language, perhaps, uh, chapter 4, verse 9. In the middle of chapter 4, verse 9, God the Father sent his one and only Son into the world. I think that's just a place where we live. Or uh, chapter 4, verse 17. John says, we live in this world. I think that's just a place. So John uses this world, world, so I'm going to get confused, word, world, in a natural sense, creation. But there's a second sense, which is what he's using here, of where it's contrasted to loving God. So it's obvious here, isn't it, in in chapter 2, verse 15, the contrast is drawn. If anyone loves the world, they don't love the Father. There's opposition right there. Or verse 17, the world passes away, but the one who follows the will of God lives. There's a contrast right there. And that is most commonly how he's using it in this letter. Opposition to God. It can be outright hostility to God in a number of places. So chapter 3, verse 13. Don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. So there can be real hostility there as well. So there's these two broad senses, and we mustn't get them confused. Okay, Okay, first, the world in John's writing can just be a place. This world. Don't hate that. It's nice. Don't hate this world. That would be a mistake. Genesis 1, God saw this world and God made the world and said it was good. It is a good place. Mankind is to steward over this earth. God, the Father, he clothes the flowers. He feeds the birds. Matthew 6, not a sparrow falls to the ground without his knowledge. Matthew 10, God loves his world that he's created. The Apostle Paul would argue, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if received with thanksgiving. So enjoy this world in that sense. Don't panic if you see a fire alarm on the wall and call it a devil. You don't need to do that. Every culture, every Christian culture has its little foibles with things in the world that are absolutely appalling and we may not agree. Some would remember. Do you remember the film, 1980s film? It was remade recently. Footloose. Do you remember that? Did you dance to that? Um, it's been remade, so uh, you had another go at it last year. I haven't seen the remake. But I, um, I quite like the original. Uh, it was Kevin Bacon's big break. Do you remember the, anyway, in the original small town America and dancing is banned because it's bound to make you completely immoral if you dance. And uh, near the beginning of the film, the minister in the church, he's John Lithgow, and um, he sort of denounces from the pulpit the, the sort of horrors of dancing, not because he can't do it, just because he thinks it's uh, genuinely bad, dancing evil, dancing will lead you to hell, etc., etc. 
Uh, the, the rebellious Kevin Bacon arrives in town and he, you know, dances. Um, and uh, goes out with John Lithgow's daughter. <gasps> uh, but has a conversation with him and says, well, Reverend, I can't remember the guy, Reverend Lithgow, it's not. Um, why don't you go and read the Bible and see what it says? And John Lithgow reads the Bible and, oh dear, David dances. And gosh, there's quite a lot of dancing in the Bible. And so has to realize he's just got a bit odd about dancing. And so at the end of the film, everyone's dancing. And even John Lithgow and his wife are doing sort of dad dancing. Um, and everyone dances, hurrah. And dancing changes the world. I think that's the message, something along those lines. <laughs> Look, we can all be odd and think certain things culturally. Every Christian culture says, oh, that's bad in the world. But we need to be a little bit careful. Everything God created is good. Nothing to be rejected if received with thanksgiving. So enjoy what God has given. And enjoy that God in his common grace has given to people who don't know him, people who aren't Christians, but he's given to plenty of Musicians, wonderful talent, which you can enjoy. You don't have to just enjoy Beethoven, you can enjoy Mozart, etc. He's given to filmmakers, wonderful talents, which we can enjoy. To artists who don't know him, wonderful talents that we can enjoy. God, by his common grace, has given those things. We can receive them and enjoy them, if we give thanks to him. Enjoy his creation. The world, in the sense of the place that God has created, is good. Don't hate it. Enjoy it. But that's not what we're talking about here. Here it's the second sense, opposition to God. Or I wonder if a helpful way of describing it would be materialism. In two senses of that word. Materialism which says, this is all that there is. The material world is all that String theory can explain everything in this world. You just need a few constants. But other than that, there is nothing beyond the material world that we can see. Materialism. All, there's only what this, only the material, only that we can see. And also materialism in the second sense. Stuff is all that matters. The accumulation of stuff is all that matters. So eat, drink and be merry. The negative sense, then, of world, cosmos, world, perhaps it's simply put this way. Creation minus God equals the world, as John is defining it here. So God's created world minus God, that's this world, worldliness, the material world and nothing more. But he's very clear, verse 15, you have a choice. As uh, the whole of this letter is, it's fairly binary. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Make your choice, he says. You love the world, you love the Father. If you love the world, that could manifest in you saying, there is no God. It could just manifest in an obsession for things that are not God. Material accumulation. But you love one or the other. Creation minus God equals the world. That's what the world is here. Second thing, what then is loving the world? If that was what the world is, materialism, what is loving the world? Well, verse 16 defines that in three little phrases. Everything in the world. What are are the things that are in the world? Three little phrases. 
the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Okay, three little things. Uh, the first then, the cravings of sinful man. Literally, the desires of the flesh or the desires of our nature. Desires that rise up from within is the first. The second, lust of his eyes. Again, literally, the desire of the eyes. So wanting something outside of us. And third, uh, the boasting of life, the boasting of possessions. So it's quite interesting. The first two then are a longing for stuff that we don't have. Desires from within, lust of the eyes we don't have. And the third is a boasting of what we do have. So worldliness can manifest in all sorts of things. You can have nothing or you can have lots. You can still get you. It's sort of all-encompassing in that sense. Let's work through them in turn because they are slightly different. First then, don't love the world. What will it mean? It will be the the cravings of the flesh. Avoid that. It's literally desires, but cravings is not a bad translation because we get the idea of craving, don't we? We want something. In little silly senses, I crave some chocolate. I'm going to have it. You know, that sort of, uh, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. But the point of a craving is it controls us. So we all have desires. It's entirely normal and natural to desire food or companionship or sex or security or friendship. These are normal things to desire, but a craving says, I must have them. They are more important than anything else. I must have them. Uh, I think I mentioned, in, in our house, for slightly peculiar reasons, but the, the musical West Side Story has had a renaissance, and um, uh, even seven-year-old, lots, much singing of West Side Story. It's fine. Um, but uh, hence it's always in my head and going round. But there's a little, uh, there's a little craving. Uh, there's a song uh, near the end. And, of course, the main lead, Maria, has fallen in love with Tony. Tony has just killed her brother in a fight. And Tony is from the wrong gang. And so Maria's friend, Anita, is saying, what are you doing? A boy like that will kill your brother, uh, etc. And on, on she sings, and you're mad. You can't, you can't be with him. What are you thinking? He's killed your brother. And uh, Maria replies, not, I can't sing it. The... Um, I hear your words, and in my head, I know they're smart. But my heart, Anita, but my heart, my heart is too strong, and to him I belong, and him alone. She's saying, look, I hear what you're saying. It's madness to try and go out with a guy who's just killed my brother, and everyone I know hates him. Of course you're correct, but my heart, my heart, I have a craving for him. I desire him, and that overrules everything. That's the desire of um, the cravings of sinful man, the desire of the flesh. That's what he's talking about here. My appetites at the expense of God. My desire, my craving, my appetites, that trumps anything and comes at the expense of God. So the man who says, look, I've got the offer of this job. This job is not ethical. But the money it pays trumps everything. That's more important than anything else. More important than God. 
Or the woman who says, look, I, this man is not a Christian. I, I know biblically I shouldn't marry him because I am a Christian. But, but my desire for him, it's more important than anything. I crave him. Actually, it is more important than God. Or the man who says, uh, it is killing me at the moment, trying to control everything in my life, trying to pin down every relationship and every item. But control, the feeling that I'm in charge, is more important than anything. More important than anything. More important than God, so I've just got to do it. We know those sort of cravings at times. When my appetites come at the expense of following God, that's worldliness. That's the cravings of sinful man. Second little thing he mentions, there's the lust of the eyes. Again, it's literally desires of the eyes, but um, the lust of the eyes. We see things and we want them. And the journey from the eye to the heart is not a long one. Very, very quickly. And of course, most of us are attacked uh, on a daily basis in this regard. I just wonder, I don't know about in your household, I, I know it depends how long you live somewhere, and if you constantly move, it doesn't work. But once you've lived somewhere for a while, you just get magazines come through the door. And I don't know how they get hold of you, but they're predatory. These magazines come through the door, and it's clothing, and sofas, and clothing, and holidays, and clothing. These magazines are boof, 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 land on from various different companies. You get on some mailing list and it's relentless and they're predatory because they want your money. They want you. Um, in fact, the magazines I get are mostly um, clerical ones and advertising robes and candles. They don't really... <clears throat> uh, if I was obsessed with chalices and the like, I'd be in trouble, but um, uh, in truth, the weekly magazine that comes through gets binned pretty quickly. But... Um, but the other ones, you know, it's fairly relentless, these magazines come through. And from a young age, a seven-year-old gets his Lego magazine comes through. It's free. But of course, it's just, it's a loss leader. He gets it. It's fun. Oh, look, what's new? And he says out loud, as a seven-year-old does, what we all think in our heads, I want it. I want that. And that. And that. My friend has that, so I need that, and that. And uh, we, 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 can't, we don't say those things out loud, that would be crass, wouldn't it? But we think them. We think them. I want that, it's not Lego for many of us, but I want that electronic gizmo, I want that style, restyling of the home, I want that item of clothing. Of course, I just, you know, they're predatory, these magazines, don't be fooled. They're not enjoyable, they're after you, they want your money, all of them. Of course, they know what they're doing. And so he's saying here, beware the lusts of the eyes. You see things and the desire embeds itself in your heart very, very quickly indeed. Now let me mention one. I haven't mentioned this for a while, so it's, you have to do it so often. But um, let me mention just as an example, an extreme example in one sense of how the lust of the eyes affect us. It's a pornographic material. I don't know how honest these statistics are. It's probably quite hard to get honest ones. But apparently, last year in the UK, 40% of men and 20% of women accessed pornography online. 80% of all 8 to 16-year-olds in this country have viewed pornography online. 8 to 16-year-olds. 
Now, of course, there's differences. You can caricature them, but of course, uh, for women, it is going to, the, the arousal often comes more from escaping into romantic or steamy fantasies. There's a reason that Fifty Shades of Grey is a bestseller on the Kindle for most people, so they can read it um, uh, without being known. But there's a reason that sells so much. But of course, for men, it's more commonly the images. And what's the cause of that's an extreme example of the lust of the eyes because it's so very addictive. But it happens in all areas, probably. It doesn't matter if it's clothing or sofa. But pornography, of course, is different in, in the strength of it. Uh, very briefly, two things, of course. It's addictive and destructive. It's addictive. There was some research done, finished last year, by the Wellcome Trust in the UK, uh, in London, at the end of a four-year research project into cabbies, London cabbies. And um, they said, it's very obvious from the study, that we can rewire our own brains. Technically, there's a neuroplasticity to the brain. So they took all these, these guys who were going to do the London knowledge, you know, where you drive around and have to know how all the streets link up, etc. And uh, they analysed CAT scans of their brains before they did this. And then when they'd passed the knowledge however many months, years later, they re-examined um, their brains, and the brains had tra- been transformed. All of them in the same area. It's a four-year study. The um, Technically, the posterior hippocampus, I have no idea what that is, a bit of the brain. The, that had swollen in the cabbies. So the part of the brain that's responsible for mapping. And that had come at the expense of um, instinct. They said these guys are brilliant at knowing the shortest route from A to B, brilliant at having the map of London in their head. But if um, if there's diversions, they're a bit thrown. They're much slower to adjust than anyone else. Too much gags about, ah, oh, now we know why they're so intransigent and stubborn. <laughs> um, but the point of the study was we rewire our brains by what we feed them. And then, of course, it went on. This has implications for all sorts of areas, for brain-damaged people. But one implication, pornography rewires the brain in a very strong way. In a really strong way. Because you learn to be excited by certain images. Uh, and, of course, there are physical elements to it. And orgasm is the most biggest Pavlovian reinforcer possible. You find that with your spouse, wonderful. You find that with images in a magazine or online, disaster. Because then your brain associates that's the only thing that can excite you. You rewire your brain with pornography. It's very addictive and destructive, of course. This is a U.S. statistic, but in the U.S., 56% of those divorcing cited internet porn as a factor. High number. 56%. ruins relationships. It ruins your relationship with God. You get into a cycle of guilt. You lose intimacy. When John says, beware the lust of the eyes, he is not simply talking about that. But, that is a very strong example of how the lust of the eyes rewires your brains and can destroy your life. I am not saying that lusting after Lego does the same. Or sofas or clothes. But, John is saying, beware the lust of the eyes. They shape you. You desire the wrong things, 
and they make you who you are. Beware, lusts change us. Those two then, um, uh, uh, cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes. The third then, the third and last element, the boasting. The boasting of what he has or does. Literally the boasting of life. The boasting of what we are. Uh, it's an unusual little word that gets used here, the boasting of life. In, um, oh, this is interesting, Mark 12, 44, the poor widow. You remember Jesus praises the poor widow. She gives out of her poverty. He tells us that she put her whole life in. Bios, everything. Same word as here. The boasting of life, translated what he has and does. The woman put her life into, uh, into the collection plate. Boasting here of all that you are. What you've achieved. What you own. How you relate to other people. The braggart. Boasting. Now that's easy to fall into. I don't know if you saw this month, it depends if you like your sports. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the best footballers in the world, um, slightly odd bloke probably, but then if you're paid millions and millions and uh, are wonderfully talented, that probably does distort you a bit. I wouldn't know. Um, uh, but um, so Cristiano Ronaldo, he plays for Real Madrid. He gets paid £8 million a year to play football, which I think is quite a good salary. I don't know about you. Um, but in September, whenever he scored, and he's good at that, whenever he scored, he refused to celebrate. You know, teammates would try and mob him as they do, and he'd just walk away and would have nothing to do with them. And this is odd behavior. You know, footballers, they like to, you know, have a little cuddle when they score. What, what is this? <laughs> what is this? This sort of miserable. And, uh, and so he was interviewed, of course. The issue is, I feel sad due to my professional situation at the club. Poked a little, the interviewer poked a little bit. He's not paid enough. Now, you'd have thought eight million pounds would get you most things. There are only so many Maserati sports cars you can actually buy. Um, but eight million pounds is not, but it's not the money. It's the fact that at the beginning of September, a poll came out listing, listing the footballers by what they get paid. And he was number 10 in the list. He was very sad about that. He doesn't need any more money. He just wants to be ranked number one. And he's annoyed because there are other footballers at the club who aren't as good as him, who get paid the same as him. And why, why is he so upset? Because he can't boast. He doesn't need any more money. He just wants to boast that he's the best, the best paid, because it's related to his status. Now, it's easy to look at that and think, silly man. Don't do that, because you and I are very similar. Not with our eight million pounds, but we look around and compare. And where do we fit in? Particularly if you're a bloke, we love doing this. Where do you fit in? Who do you know? Who are you invited to this? Did you? Oh, you weren't invited. Oh, you've performed with him. Oh, oh, you've gone up a few rankings. We do that all the time. We love to boast. We compare. Years ago, Adam Smith made this observation. Uh, the wealth of nations. It's one of his famous little bits from that. To what purpose is all the toil and bustle of this world? What is the end of greed and ambition, of the pursuit of wealth and power and preeminence? Is it to supply the necessities of nature, food and drink and clothes? No. 
Now, the wages of the poorest laborer can supply them. What then are the advantages of that great purpose of human life, which we call bettering our condition? To be observed. To be attended to. To be noticed. Ah. Do I need any more money? I don't need any more money. I just want to be known. I want to boast of my life, of what I have, of what I do. Beware that, says John. That's worldliness. Okay? So there's the second thing. What is worldliness? It's the cravings from within, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what we have and what we do. They do not come from the Father, they come from the world. So thirdly, briefly, why not love the world? Well, two main reasons given in the the passage. The first is very simple. You can't love the world and the Father. You cannot. So verse 15, do not love the world or anything in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love both. But we know that. That's throughout the scriptures. Jesus, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Uh, They'll hate the one and love the other, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, particular example. You cannot serve two. You love one, hate the other. Or James, James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We don't like the binary nature of that. But remember, it's creation minus God equals worldliness. Creation minus God first in my life equals hatred to God. That's what he's talking here. Let me apply this briefly two ways. Uh, the first, then, on, on sort of national level, in the context of one John, if you if you choose to love the world, you walk away from the Father. That that's really what he's describing, and uh, the people he's talking about here, the war he's warning against, they've left the church because they're worldly. Now that's very contemporary. Not that people leave the established church, but they leave Jesus Christ. Happens in the UK. Let me give you an example from the States. Here's a very striking article in the New York Times, which is no friend of the gospel, probably you'd say. Um, for us Brits, it's uh, left-wing, but that's neither here nor there. But not, not, a, not a gospel-supporting newspaper by any stretch of the imagination. It's talking about the, uh, the Episcopal Church of the States, so the Church of England, C of E, as it were, in the States. Very striking article, talking about how worldly it is. So the Episcopal Church has spent the last several decades changing and then changing some more into one of the most self-consciously liberal and progressive bodies in the United States. It still has priests and bishops, altars and stained glass windows, but is flexible to the point of indifference on dogma, friendly to sexual liberation in any form, willing to blend Christianity with other faiths, eager to downplay theology. They have created an idol of Jesus. A Plato Jesus, just as is being described here. They don't like the real one. They've made one that fits with the world. 
Today, the leaders of the Episcopal Church and similar bodies don't seem to be offering anything you cannot already get from a purely secular liberalism, which suggests that perhaps they should pause amid their frantic renovations and consider not just what they'd change about Christianity, but what they would actually defend and offer uncompromisingly to the world. A worldly Christianity. It's on a national level. Beware of that. That'll take place all the time. There'll be people in their robes with their stained glass windows. But they love the world and they want to fit in with the world so they'll reject Jesus. That'll happen. But of course the the trickier one is uh, the personal challenge. If you you read this and think, okay, the binary nature, I don't know where I fit in. I'm somewhere in the grey middle, of course. But I guess the question then becomes... If if your love for the Lord is weak and you think, yeah, I'm here and uh, I'm a Christian, but to be honest, I'm firing on half power. It doesn't really affect me during the week. If your love for the Lord is a little lukewarm, is that because your love for the world is too strong? And surely John would make that connection. There's an obvious, if love for the world goes up, love for the Lord goes down. If our desires are all for the world, our desire for him goes down. So that's a challenge for me, I, I think. If my love to know the Lord, to serve the Lord is in decline, is that because I just love the world too much? The stuff, the lust of the eyes, the desire to boast. As one goes up, the other goes down. And then the last thing John wants to say, so there's the first reason, why not love the world? Because you can't. You can't love the world and the Father. The last one is very simple, verse 17. The world and his desires pass away. Verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The world and its desires will go. They don't last very long. Now forgive me, particularly those of you at the wedding yesterday. Don't do these things very often, but uh, this, this, I mean, this is very simple. If you've never seen this, I just find it helpful and striking personally. Mind the buggies. Ooh. And the trumpet. You need to imagine that rope went well. You need to imagine that rope. goes out the door, goes round the globe, circumvents the globe again and again and again. Well, that'll be eternity. And the yellow tape at the beginning, here's this life. And it's not very long. And why would you live for the desires of this life when they're passing away, when eternity goes on forever? Eternity is a very long time. The desires of this world, the world and its desires, will pass away. By contrast, the man who does the will of God lives forever. Why live for this rather than what will last forever? Why would you do that, says John? That's madness. If you crave happiness in this world without God, you pursue it without him, 
and you crave happiness, you'll just receive misery in eternity. If you crave love in this world without God, then you'll receive rejection in eternity. If you crave significance in this world without God, then in eternity you'll get futility. If you crave control in this world without God, then in eternity you get chaos. This world is passing away, he says. Don't love the world. But live for me. Love me. Desire to do the Father's will. And you receive him forever, along with happiness, love, significance. Don't love the world. It's passing away. Love me, says the Father. Love my son. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we pray to you, these are very simple words indeed, to not be drawn into worldliness. Much harder to do in practice when our senses are assailed with the lust of the eyes, our desire to boast is so very, very strong. Father, would we recognize that that's incompatible with love for you? Would we look to your goodness? Would we look to eternity to know that this world is passing away, but life that is won for us by Jesus Christ endures forever, and in him is all the things that we crave here and now, but deeper, richer, truer. So would we look to him, and if for eternity we pray. Amen.